So as I've said, we're, we're continuing this journey through Ecclesiastes. And Koalef, who's the main voice in this book, again, I just remind you, there's a narrator that opens in this book, and there's a narrator at the end of this book that gives us a conclusion. But in between, we have this voice of this guy called the teacher, or the preacher, as it's sometimes translated, or Koalef, as it is in the Hebrew. And he's the central voice in this book, and he's, he's on, this, and on this very angsty search for meaning. He's seeking meaning for his life. And when he's seeking meaning, he's not seeking meaning in the sense that he, he wants a dream for his life. That life would be great if only I could fulfill my dream of being a hairdresser or an ice cream van owner or that kind of thing. He's not after a dream in that sense. He's trying to understand and he's trying to wrestle with the idea of what it means to be human. What is the point of human life? And in his mind, as we've gone through this book, because it's been very upbeat so far, hasn't it? <laughs> no, it's not. So as we've gone through this book, he sees life as meaningless. He sees it as vapor. He sees that human existence as fleeting and fragile, and it's unprofitable. And he's got this frustration, and he's got this real lament, because he's trying to hold on to hope with one side, but at the same time, he's looking around life, and all he sees is carnage, and all he sees is misery. Which, as I've said, is a difficult thing to wrestle with as we read these words, but actually, sometimes that's, that's our plight as well. We, we have this hope, but we look around us, and we sense this also. In our hope, we also sense this desperation. What is the point of life? And he's not a positive person. He doesn't try and sugarcoat it. And he doesn't try and make us happy. It's not his aim. And yet there are people. I have read people and I've heard people who try and take Koalef's words and they try and sweeten them up. And they take his sentences away from the context of all his angst and his lament. And they turn him into a faith preacher. And I've heard many phrases in Ecclesiastes. He's been made to make him sound like he's, not Ecclesiastes itself, but Koalef himself, making him sound like a faith preacher. And he's not a faith preacher. He's certainly not. He's certainly not. He's anything but most of his frustrations are with God. And let's be honest, sometimes we get frustrated with God. That's, that's the reality of it. But he, he feels, as we said early on in this book, in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 13, he feels God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. And he blames God a lot, as we've seen in the previous weeks. And even when Koalef talks about enjoyment being a gift from God, he says it in a context that makes it sound like this joy is nothing more than a narcotic. It just numbs us. And it helps us to be distracted from the fact that there is no real point in life. That there's nothing better to do than eat and drink and enjoy ourselves. And so he's a believer, but he has a lot of hang-ups with God. He doesn't understand God. In fact, this picture of God isn't quite complete, as we'll see this morning. And most of those hang-ups have been in the background of what we've said so far and what we've seen so far. But when we get to the beginning of chapter 5, well, well, he just opens up. And if you've wondered what's bugged them with God so far, well, he lets loose at the beginning of chapter 5. And he gives full vent to his full frustration with God and his problem, which we'll explore this morning. Which is interesting because the words that we're going to read are words that I've often heard people take away from what Koalef says and sweeten them up. And they don't acknowledge his issue and his problem, which we need to acknowledge because it will resonate with us. And so we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And even though we're going to read it all, I'd encourage you to turn to it if, you, if you've got it. I'm just going to focus on the beginning of this book. However, I will say in the second half, as you will read this chapter, you'll see in the second half, the Koalef once again talks about injustice and oppression 
and all these kind of things of corrupt rulers and oppressive rulers and greed and the problem with envy. And as we've already discussed that, we've already looked at that in a chapter before this. But it will help us as we, as we kind of look at the beginning of chapter 5. It will help us to appreciate where Kolef's head is at. If we recall what he's just said in chapter 4. And if we see what he goes on to say in the rest of chapter 5. And so if you've got Ecclesiastes with you, we're going to turn to it. And I'm going to read this from the complete Jewish Bible, which is a great translation. And if you are reading this in the Hebrew, not that you have to read this in Hebrew, you, you'll probably find that you have to drop back into chapter 4 for the, for the verse 4 of what is, for the last verse of chapter 4. But it says this. Watch your step when you go into the house of God. That's nice, isn't it? Watch your step when you go into the house of God. Offering to listen is better than fools offering sacrifices because they don't discern whether or not they are doing evil. Don't speak impulsively. Don't be in a hurry to give voice to your words before God. For God is in heaven and you on, on earth, so let your words be few. Has anyone heard that verse before? For nightmares come from worrying too much and a fool when he speaks chatters too much. If you make a vow to God, don't delay in discharging it. For God takes no pleasure in fools, so discharge your vow. Better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not discharge it. Don't let your words make you guilty. And don't tell the temple official that you made a vow by mistake. Why give God reason to be angry at what you say and destroy all you have accomplished? For this is what happens when there are too many dreams, aimless activities and words. Instead, fear God. If you see the poor oppressed, rights violated, and justice perverted in the province... Don't be surprised. For high, what a high official has one higher watching him, and others are watching them. But the greatest advantage to the country is when the king makes himself the servant of the land. The lover of money never has enough money. The lover of luxury never has enough income. This too is pointless, so meaningless, or vapor, as we've said in previous weeks. When the quantity of goods increases, so does the number of parasites wishing to consume them. So the only advantage to the owner is that he gets to watch them do it. The sleep of a working man is sweet, whether he eats much or little, but the overfulness of the rich won't let them sleep at all. He is a gross evil which I've seen under the sun. The owner of wealth hoards it to his own hurt. Due to some misfortune, the wealth turns to loss, and then if he is a father of a son, he has nothing to leave him. Just as he came from his mother's womb, so he will go back naked as he came, and for all his efforts he will take nothing that he, away that he can carry away in this land. In his hand, sorry. This too is a gross evil, that in every respect as he came, so he will go. So what profit does it have? So what, what profit does he have after toiling to earn the wind? All his life he eats in darkness, in frustration, in sickness, and in anger. And this is what I've seen to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat and drink and enjoy the good results from all his work that he engages in under the sun for all the days of his life that God gives him. For this is his allotted portion. Also, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth along with the power and to enjoy it, so that he takes his allotted portion and finds pleasure in his work, this is a gift from God. For he will not brood over the fact that his life is short, since God keeps him occupied with what it will bring him joy. He's upbeat, isn't he? You've got to laugh. If we don't laugh, we're just going to end today just in tears, but we've got to laugh. I'm a shusher. I am a shusher. I am a self-confessed shusher. That means I'm one of those people who go, shh, shh, shh. 
I'm good at it. I'm pretty good at it. In fact, I'm so good at it that I think my, I missed my calling in life to be a librarian. I think I made a, would have made a very good librarian, I think. And even in cinemas, I'm very good at going, shh, when people are too loud with a popcorn and that kind of thing. I'm pretty good at shushing. And I don't do it constantly, but there are times, there are times in life when a shush needs to be issued. There are times, like when you're watching Mass Singer and people are talking over the clues, people need to go shh, people need to get a shush. Or when you're watching a film at home and there's an important piece of dialogue that is important to the plot of the film, that's integral to the film, that's really important, and people are talking over it and you have to go shh. I do it quite a lot. At which point my kids go shh back and then there's this shh kind of fit that goes on for five minutes. Or when you're driving in the car, and there's a really classic song that comes on, like Billy Joel's The River of Dreams. And you throw that subtle hint to everyone that it's a good song, so you throw the subtle hint by turning the volume up slightly. Which is, which is a clue, isn't it, that everyone else in the car needs to stop talking and start listening because the volume's gone slightly up. But people don't get the clue. How insensitive of them. And they carry on talking. In fact, they don't just carry on talking, but because the volume's gone up, they think they have to talk louder. And so you have to go, shh, the cheek of it. And then in those moments, and I will confess to these moments, although I'm going to get in trouble by confessing to these moments, but there's those moments when you sneak to the fridge at night, just for a little bit of midnight nibbles, or in my case, just a bit of bedtime chocolate, just before you go to bed. Steph's switching the lights off, and I'm, going, I'm, I'm pretending to go check if the back door's locked. But I'm at the fridge door, really. And I am there trying to get a little bit of bedtime chocolate. But the chocolate bar wrapper doesn't quite understand how secretive this mission needs to be. And when you're trying to open the chocolate bar wrapper, it just keeps on making noise. And so for some reason, you find yourself as a human talking to something that's not a human, telling it to go, shh, shh, shh. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. And I do it a lot, shh. Shush means be quiet. And we need some quiet in our lives, don't we? Quiet is important. I don't know whether it's just because I'm, I've got past 40, but I think, I think quiet is important because we live in a noisy world. And I'm not talking about sound. I'm not talking about noise in that sense. But there's attempts all the time to be heard and to be seen and to be noticed. And they are abundant. And there's so many people in our world that are trying to grab attention. But in contrast, shushing reminds us that actually we need to give our attention. That there's a time that we need to give our attention to where we are and what is going on around us. There are moments in life when, when reverence is needed. Reverence means an awed respect. When I go silent, and when my ears, I nearly said eyes then, when my ears and my eyes open up to what is going on around me, and I give my attention to something other than me. Shh. That's a good thing, isn't it? The poet in Psalm 46, verse 10, to give you another famous verse this morning, he writes, be still, be still and know that I am God. They're beautiful words. They are so beautiful. It's be still and know that I am God. Philip, Rand, Philip Yancey, the famous writer Philip Yancey, he notes that the, the Latin imperative, you don't need to remember this, but the Latin imperative for be still means to vacate. 
It means to get out. It means to go away. And so when God says, be still, God is inviting us to take a holiday, to take a vacation, to stop pretending to be God, to go on holiday, to vacate and let God be God, to climb down from our high positions of control and our delusions of grandeur and our idea of us being the center and let God be who God is and to realize who we are and the fact that we are not God. That's good news this morning. I am not God. You are not God. And from my own experience, I've found as many times when I've been in God with prayer, when I've sensed the Holy Spirit say, shh, you're not God. It's a good thing if that ever happens to you. And it's a liberating moment. It's liberating to remember that I am not God, that God is not me, and there is a difference, a big difference. There is a manner of speaking a great divide between humans and God in the sense that as far as categories go, God and human are nothing alike. They are very different. So God is not a creation like me. God is the creator. God is infinite. I am finite. God is eternal. Well, I have a beginning and I will have an end. And by the grace of God, I will have a continuation. I live as a human being bound by time and bound by limits and bound by my own strength and I will die as a human being and I will be resurrected as a human being but God is entirely different. God is over, to use a very biblical word for it, God is holy. In fact, he's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. He's entirely over. God is God and I am not. And it's good to remember that I am human. It's good to remember that I am mortal. It's good to remember that I am dust. It's, it's Ash Wednesday this week in the church calendar, a time when people in certain churches draw ash on their heads to remember that we are mortal, we are dust, that we are not God. But when I remember that I am mortal and I am dust, I am also reminded that God understands my dustiness and God considers it whenever he handles us and when he deals with us. Psalm 103 puts it this way. I wanted to hear these words this morning. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and then we die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. Aren't they comforting words that I am dusty you are dusty. I don't mean in the sense of dusty. You do look pretty clean this morning. I don't mean in the sense, but you are dust. You are mortal. And God knows how to handle that with care. Just like those packages with handle with care. God knows how to deal with it. And that's a good thing, because as Philip Yancey goes on to say, that when there's a reverence in prayer, when there's this remembrance of who God is and who I'm not, prayer allows me to admit my failures, my weaknesses, my limitations to the one who responds to human vulnerability with infinite mercy. That God responds to human vulnerability with infinite mercy. See, reverence, reverence is appropriate when we realize we're in God's presence. It really is. And often the Bible writers use this word fear, like what we've just seen in Psalm 103, the fear of the Lord. But it's not a sense of fright. They don't mean fright. They mean awed respect. Because it's humbling to remember who we are 
how fragile we are and who God is and how great God is and that God desires us to know that he knows us and God desires us to know him. Be still and know that I am God. God says shh in a better way than I go shh when people are talking over a film. God goes shh. It's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. If we wanted to, we could use the words of Ecclesiastes verse 5. Sorry, chapter 5 and verse 2. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. They are wonderful words in that sense. You could use them in that sense. And you could use them certainly to express this idea of God's attentive care. And I know of a great worship song by Matt Redman that expresses and uses those words in that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can use those words in that way. Except that when Koalef expresses these words, he's not expressing such a positive sentiment. I don't misunderstand me. You can use the words in that way. But he takes these words and he doesn't use them that way. And you may have noticed by now as we've been through this series, as we've looked at what Koalef says, you'll notice that he often taps into themes that you find in the rest of the Bible. Verses and great declarations in the rest of the Bible. Great truths about who God is and what God is like. Even truths we said about today about God's refuge and God's name. And whenever there's a positive declaration of these truths, Koalef kind of sees it from the opposite side and he sings it in a minor He's not as impressed. And so like other parts of the Bible, Koalef, as already in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he's already reminded us that humans are nothing but dust. He said it last time I spoke. Just like in the psalm we've just read that humanity is dust. And he's doing it to show that how distinct we are from God. God is not us. You are dust, God is not. Or God is in heaven and you are on earth. It's his way of making the same point. And he's ready to make that point. He's remembering this distinction. But this distinction for Koalef is not a matter of praise. It's a big problem for him. It is his fundamental problem with God as he laments life. God is so unlike us, he feels, that there cannot be any genuine solidarity or empathy from God's side with our human condition. He feels that God is so different that God is therefore incapable if that makes sense, of seeing things from a human perspective. God will have no idea what it is like to be you, he thinks. And so he thinks that God is worlds apart. And when Koalef's promoting in his passages, he's not promoting reverence for God, but reticence and hesitation to even come into God's presence. The fear of God here is not about awed respect for him, about having an awed respect for a mighty and a compassionate deity, but it has fright in coming before something that he sees as dangerous and someone who is powerful. And it's not a note of comfort for him. He's exasperated with it. He is discontent. For Koalef, your words should be few. You should save your words because he sees God as far off. God, he sees as distant and as indifferent. And sometimes if you understand him this way, cruel. And if you approach God, he feels you better be careful. Now, as I said in the first week, because that's disconcerting, I can see the puzzles on your face. We don't have to agree with Koalef. He's wrestling with this. The conclusion of this book comes at the end. But we need to travel with his heartache, his angst. 
And you might not see that when this verse is plucked out of this sentence and its structure and this whole argument in this book, it is sweetened up. And if we forget all his other hang-ups with God and we forget what he's expressed so far and we forget what he's going to express, we lose this perspective here. But the clues are here. The clues are here. So we're going to play a bit of Agatha Christie this morning. A bit of Hercule Poirot. I think I've said that right. A bit of Miss Marple. All right? And the clues are here. So clue number one is where Koalef's head is at. Let's remember where he's been and then what he goes on to say. And so at the end of chapter three, all the way through chapter four, what's Koalef been talking about? Injustice and oppression and how there's corruption in places of authority. Not corruption in the sense of evil, but I'll explain that in a minute. But that there is greed and that there is envy. And as I pointed out last time when I spoke a couple of weeks ago in the beginning of chapter 4, he even levels a charge against God as not being there as the helper and comforter that people say he should be. And after talking about God in the beginning of chapter 5, we just read, what does he go on to talk about? Injustice and oppression and authorities. And he's still on the topic. And so he mentions in this passage that if you see injustice, well, you shouldn't be surprised by it. And the reason you shouldn't be surprised by it is, well, it's because the people who are in charge don't really care. And there's people who are in charge of them who don't really care. And there's people in charge of them who don't really care. All they care about is getting their cut. All they care about is getting what is pledged to them. So in other words, there's rulers... This is the picture he's painting as rulers who extract privileges and oaths and pledges from the land that people farm. And then there's people above them who take their cut. And there's people above them who take their cut. And so Koalef's saying, in effect, that all these people in authority, well, they're all the same. They are in it for themselves. They don't care about those lower than them. They only care about what is owed to them. The oaths and the pledges that have been made. And so this topic is there at the beginning, it's before he goes on to God. He goes on to talk about his topic after he talks about a section about God. And then in between, he's talking about God. He hasn't jumped from a different topic. He's bundling God into his problem with authorities. He sees God as being just like them. God, he feels, and he's not right. He's not right. God, he feels, is in it for himself. That all God cares about, he feels, is what is owed to him and what is pledged to him. But he doesn't really care about the people who owe it. Clue number two is his choice of words. He starts the passage with the ominous words to give the literal meaning of the Hebrew, guard your feet. Guard your feet. It's a manner of speaking that says, watch out. Watch out. A good English equivalent would be, watch your step. I'm sure we've said that in times, and we watch your step. And it's not a positive encouragement, is it? It's a warning. It's a warning. Uh, forgive me for the pop culture reference, but it reminds me of Indiana Jones. Whenever Indiana Jones goes into some temple or some tomb or some crypt to try and retrieve some treasure, and he goes in there with some companion, because he always goes in with a companion. Don't know why. He just seems, and he mustn't have any good health and safety policies. I don't know. But he takes a companion in with him. And whenever he goes in with that companion, he always turns around to the companion, and he says, watch your step, in some manner of speaking. Be careful. Don't touch anything. Watch your step. And Indiana Jones says it because he knows there's booby traps. There's always booby traps that the environment does not want you to succeed. That's how he sees it. It's rigged with the expectation that you will put a step wrong, and when you put a step wrong, that's it. 
That's how Indiana Jones says it. And it's a crude analogy, but in a similar fashion, Koalef sees God's presence in that same way. He's wrong, but he sees it that way. So his conversation about oaths, even though he is right to point out that God wants more than sacrifice, God wants obedience, not sacrifice, it's loaded with a sense that God is watching purely with the intent that when you trip up, and you will trip up, bam. And as far as Koalef is concerned, it's safer. In fact, you're better off not promising anything to God. Don't risk it. I mean, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a really difficult thing. That's not right, is it? He says, don't trust God with your words. Don't make any promises. And he rightly picks up, Koalef rightly picks up the Hebrew traditions to be mindful in the presence of God. He's playing on those traditions, but there's no scope in his idea of God for the idea of divine tenderness and compassion and mercy and handling us would occur like we saw in Psalm 103. There's no pleading your case to those God calls to collect his tributes and his oaths, he points out. In Koalef's picture of God, God is not interested in your excuses, just like an official or a bailiff or someone in authority claiming what is owed to them. They're not interested. The third and final clue is Koalef's use of the word God. 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 That's a, it means a lot. It can mean many things, the word God. Can it? Names are important in the Bible. They're really important. They're important to God. And whenever they, they, they are names, that, whether they are names that God has given to people, or whether people have given to God, or even if it's a name that God reveals to Moses from the burning bush, they all speak of the fact that God, even though God is other, and God is majestic, and he is mighty, and he is above it all, and he is categorically different to us, they all speak of the fact that even though he is other, God is still compassionately involved in humanity. He's with us. A woman called Hagar, you might not know this, but a woman called Hagar is the first person in the scriptures to give God a name, a description. She's the first theologian, to some extent, in the scriptures to give God a name. And she calls God Laharoi. Laharoi. And it means God sees. God sees. The first name given to God in the Bible is God Sees. And it's important to Hagar's story because often in the text she's not seen by those around her. She's not seen. And so in the text where Hagar appears, she's constantly objectified and she's constantly overlooked. She's never addressed in those texts by another human directly. She's just passed around in silence. And so she's not consulted when her Egyptian father gives her to Sarah as a servant. Hagar isn't consulted when Sarah passes to, to Abraham for a concubine. She has no say and speaks no words when Abraham sleeps with her, when Sarah drives her away, and when Abraham finally banishes her from his clan. No one ever hears her voice. No one ever gives attention to it. But as she discovers in the wilderness when she's been banished by Abraham, she finds out she has voice with God. God hears Hagar. God sees her plight. God allows Hagar to speak. She has a conversation with God which is not what any other human allows her to have. And God makes a covenant with Hagar, just like she does with Abraham. Different covenant, but a covenant nonetheless. And God acknowledges her as a person and not a thing, not an object that has passed around. And so no wonder she calls God the God who sees. She even calls her son Ishmael. 
And I can imagine every time she said the name Ishmael, she remembers the fact that it means God hears. God sees. God hears. Lahorai Ishmael. And so she's remembered whenever she uses these words of the one who gives the voiceless a voice and the one who gives the dispossessed an inheritance. That's a great story, isn't it? It's right there. It's right there in the, in the seed of this whole story in the scriptures. It's right there in Genesis. A beautiful, covenantal, curring, God sees, God hears, first name for God in the Bible. And I mean name, not label, name. Koalef doesn't use that name. Never mentions Lahiroi. We're never talking about God. Actually, if you look at this rant of Koalef's in the book of Ecclesiastes, he never uses any of the descriptions and names given to God. Ever. He avoids them. He avoids them. So Father and Almighty are two popular names in the Old Testament for God. I mean, Job uses Almighty all the time, and he's just as frustrated as a Koalef is, and he uses it all the time. And both those terms, Father and Almighty, they're very nurturing terms. They remind us of God's provision, of God's sustaining us, of God's care. They're not speaking of God's absence, but God's with us. And yet those words are never used. Those popular Hebrew words are never used in Koalef's rant. In fact, Koalef never even uses the name Yahweh which is the name God revealed to Moses just before he rescued the people from Egypt. And it's an important name. The story of the Old Testament revolves around the name of Yahweh. I am who I am. It revolves around it. Often in the English translations, it's translated the Lord. The Lord. We've seen it in Psalm 103 that I just read. The Lord is tender. Not only did we see the Lord, but when the Psalm 103 talks, it says the Lord is tender like a Father, Psalm 103 uses both titles and they're warm memories that invoke God's covenant and God's faithfulness. But Koalef never uses the Lord once in all his rant in Ecclesiastes. In, clever, in, in fact, whenever Koalef mentions God, he uses the Hebrew word Elohim, which is just a generic way of saying God. It's just a label, like table, Dog, shirt, t-shirt, that's not a t-shirt, t-shirt, piano. It's just a label. There's nothing personal to it. And that's Koalef's problem. It underlies the point he's making. He doesn't see God as personal. He's wrong, but he doesn't see it. And again, I'm pointing out these clues, because this passage is not encouraging a reverence Koalef is saying God is so far away, he's so impersonal, that he's not interested. If I was to rephrase his words, picking up a lot of his language from previous chapters, I'd put his, I'd put his lament this way, as he sees it. God is in heaven, you are not on earth, so don't waste your meaningless breath. That's his point. He's wrong, isn't he? He is wrong, isn't he? But we can understand his frustration. He's trying to voice this, I suppose, this sense of sorrow we feel as humans sometimes. Because I don't know why Koalef feels this way, but I certainly know he's not alone in feeling that way. He's certainly not. 
His words resonate, as I've mentioned before. He's doing it to try and unearth something in us. He never gives us the answers, but he unearths these feelings because we need to, we need to face these feelings head on. And even I, I'll be honest with you, there's even I as a Christian, as someone who loves Jesus, as someone who knows Jesus loves me, I have at times sensed this, this felt absence and this felt silence of God. I don't mean to say that God is absent or God is silent, but there are times in my life when I have felt that God is a million miles away. I mean, come on, there's not a single one of us in this room that has asked the question, where are you, God? In those moments when we have faced, as we sung this morning, those moments in, in those faced when we have found ourselves surrounded by darkness, we have turned around and said, God, where is your face? Do you not understand how I feel at this moment, God? Do you not understand what I'm going through? Where are you, God? There's times when I felt like I have been off God's radar. When I am insignificant. And there's a truth in that, I am insignificant. I'm just a speck of dust on a planet that is a speck of dust in our vast universe. Compared to the scale of God, I am. I am microscopic. I am quantum. I'm that small. Smaller than that. That'll encourage you this morning. But we've felt it, haven't we? We've felt this sense of where is God. And sometimes like Koalef, maybe like me, you've felt it when you've looked at the mess and the carnage in our world. When I look at what is happening in Ukraine, when I look at what's happening in Turkey and Syria this, this past few weeks, I think, we're, we're God, do you not see what is going on? Draw close. I see it. And sometimes I feel this way when I look at the mess that's inside myself and the carnage that's in my own heart. It's true, as Philip Yancey expresses it, in God's presence, I feel small because I am small. But that doesn't mean we're overlooked, does it? We aren't overlooked. Yes, I don't always feel loved, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love me and that God is indifferent towards me. Often when I don't feel loved, it reminds me that I have to say, shh to my doubts and my fears and open my eyes and my ears up to the compassionate acts of God in history. And without going into it, that's what Koalef is trying to do. See, I have to remind myself of stories like Hagar's. That God sees and God hears. I plunge myself into the scriptures and I remember God hearing the cries of his people in Egypt. Of God making a covenant with them of God establishing a tabernacle, a tent of meeting in them, with them, in the center of their community to remind them that his presence is with them, and God going before them in a fire at night and with a cloud during the day. I have to remind myself of those stories. And then I jump forward to the New Testament when I see the climax of God's commitment to humanity, of God closing down any notions of God not wanting to know us. When God becomes like us, one of us, when God becomes flesh and blood in Jesus, fully God, fully human. I cannot say God does not know what it's like to be human when I know Jesus Christ. See, and in that human body, Jesus taught us that yes, yes, you can let your words be few in the presence of God. Our words needn't be babbling on like fools and on and on. Not because God is indifferent but because God cares about us and because God already knows our needs before we ask him. See, out of the knowledge of God's care, we can pray, can't we? 
out of the knowledge of God's care for us, we can say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. See, prayer begins in the acknowledgement that God, in all his majesty, all his greatness, all his otherness, is already attentive to us, desiring us to commune with him. Or to use the words of Psalm 116, because the Lord bends down to listen, I will pray. Because the Lord bends down to listen, I will pray. Can I get away with another pop culture analogy to close? All right. It's been Valentine's this week. And if you're into your Valentine's, if you're into your fake love day, as someone calls it, I won't point out to who that is, but you probably know them because they've used it and everyone's just looked at that person, sorry. It's been Valentine's this day and it's always a time for rom-coms. And so this week I was remembered, reminded of my favorite romantic comedy called Notting Hill. Uh, and in Notting Hill... Uh, there's a character called William who's played by Hugh Grant, the, the wonderful Hugh Grant. He's played by Hugh Grant, and he runs a travel bookshop. He's just a nobody, a nobody, an insignificant, everyday Joe Bloggs nobody. And he falls in love with a Hollywood A-lister called Anna, who's played by Julia Roberts. And because of the great distance in their status, William often feels out of place. He often finds it hard to believe that this could be real and questions Anna's love for him. It seems too out of this world. It seems like there's no way someone like her in her greatness could understand and genuinely care for somebody like me and understand what my world is like. The gap is too big. And at one point in the film, Anna desperately tries to get William to grasp how sincere her love is and how genuine she is. And she stands before William and delivers the best line in all romantic comedy history. She turns to him and says, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy, asking him to love her. Some of you moved your lips in time with that then. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy, asking him to love her. Now, I'm not meaning to be irreverent, and I know there's more to it, but I think that line captures something of God's approach to us in Jesus. See, God became flesh in order that we could grasp that even though there's a huge difference between humans and God, this does not mean that God's desire to be with us and for his to be in his presence is somehow insincere or suspicious or lacks any empathy. God wants us to know his presence. See, prayer is so much more than the pursuit of Christ. It's an invitation to feel Christ's desire for us. And if you truly want to revere God, then as Hebrews encourages us to do so, rush in with boldness into the presence of God because we have a great high priest who knows our weaknesses and our dustiness and our frailty. If Koalef was here, we would say, you've got it wrong. Look at Jesus. Look at the rest of your tradition, mate. Look at Jesus and remember that God knows you and he loves you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning. Sometimes we, I suppose we do look at ourselves and we think that there's no way you could know about me. No way you'd even care about me. And I'm not just talking about me here, I'm talking about every other me in this room today, Lord God. Sometimes in life through what we experience and what we go through, sometimes we pray and we feel like our 
the words aren't getting any higher than the ceiling in our rooms. Sometimes it feels the darkness has hidden your face as we sung this morning. But may we remember in those moments and may we trust in the unchanging grace of God. That actually, even though our words might seem they are just going no further than our room, even when our words can't even, with the strength of what we're going through, can't even utter out of our mouths, we know that you know what we need before, you, we, before we even ask you for it. May we trust in the intimate knowledge that you have of us. May we trust in the fact that your love and your passion for us is, is so wonderful, Lord, as the psalmist say, that your faithfulness is higher than the heavens. And it reaches down into the depths of our very being and into the depths of our world. And in those moments when we do forget it, Lord God, in those moments when we do forget it, and we, may we plunge into the Scriptures and we remember right from the beginning the God who sees and the God who hears and remember the climax of those promises when we see the God who sees and the God who hears come and be one with us and journey with us and walks with us and even goes to the cross and through death and is raised to life again for us. May we remember your love and your grace and the power of your salvation that you've won for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.